0: Glory be to the Father.
1: And I first and foremost want to wish you a most blessed feast of St. Nicholas. Here it arrives on a Sunday this year. That's wonderful. That heightens the celebration, a double whammy in a good sense. Because on Sunday, we always observe the resurrection of Christ. But then we have, at the same time this year, the... Feast of St. Nicholas, huge feast in the Eastern churches, especially in my particular Byzantine Catholic Church, because St. Nicholas is considered the patron saint of the whole Byzantine Catholic Church. He did not found the Byzantine Catholic Church, but he is a major, major saint. And he came from the area where the Byzantine Church came from. The area that we now know today is modern-day Turkey, which is largely a Muslim country, but at one time it had a tremendous, tremendous center of Christianity in what is today known as Istanbul. It used to be called Constantinople and before that Byzantium. That's where we get the name Byzantine Church because when Constantine, the Roman emperor who moved the center of the Roman empire to the town, the city of Byzantium, which is on the Bosphora, it's by the Black Sea, it's really the gateway to Asia from Europe to Asia, a very critical city, critical place on earth. He was impressed by that city, so he basically set up his shop there as head of the Roman Empire, and this is in the 4th century, and he renamed it after himself, Constantinople. You know, he was Constantine. In the 15th century, when the invading Muslims came into this region and they took over Constantinople, formerly Byzantium, they renamed the city Istanbul, and that's what it is to this day. And the Christian presence there is very, very small. The center, what would be considered the center of the Greek Orthodox Church in the world, is still there. But the center is, in terms of its status and so on, not in terms of its value in God's eyes, but in terms of its status, say, for example, in relation to the Vatican, it is much, much reduced. The patriarch there, Bartholomew, the great man, is, well, practically like, a bit of a prisoner almost. He's not all that free, and they're not that free to practice their Christianity there. They do, but it's still its still not what it once was. It was once a great, great powerhouse. But in any event, St. Nicholas came from this region, and he was real. In fact, his remains are buried in to this day in the city of Bari, Italy, and they still secrete a fragrant myrrh. Yes, they're are, there are myrrh-secreting remains of St. Nicholas. And in our tradition, it's very customary to have the children put their shoes out on the night before and after the evening Vesper prayers in the church, the children go to bed and they wake up the next morning and they have little treats in their shoes from St. Nicholas. In fact, that was one of the earlier times for the gift-giving that we now know is the gift-giving on Christmas, even on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. It used to be on the feast of St. Nicholas because of that custom and the stories of St. Nicholas being very, very charitable, especially to children at night, coming in at night, for instance, and leaving gifts and coins and so on. And so the custom arose in the Byzantine tradition to put the shoes out on the night before, and then the next day the children wake up and the shoes are filled with the treats. Also, speaking of gift-giving, the Feast of the Epiphany, the feast of in the Western church, that's the feast of the visit of the Magi, the three kings to Jesus at his nativity. In the Eastern churches, it's the baptism of Jesus, which we call theophany. That actually was the greater day of gift-giving centuries ago because the Magi brought gifts. So people developed the tradition of giving gifts to one another on that feast day, which was after the birth of Christ. Now we have it all on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So it changed over the centuries, but that was the origins of the gift-giving. It was on the Feast of the Epiphany and also the Feast of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas, as I mentioned, is is real. It's amazing how his example lives on to this day, of course, was the archetype, the origin of we now know today as Santa Claus, which is a variation of the word St. Nicholas. And imagine it's celebrated worldwide for generations, how one man... And it was through what? Through humility and charity. He wasn't the president of the United States. He wasn't an emperor, a king. He was a humble bishop, known for his charity, commitment to the poor, his holiness, and also known for standing up for the truth in the Nicene Council, where he refuted Arius. In fact, the story goes that he even slapped Arius across the face for, for promoting a heresy about Jesus Christ. Later on in a vision, the bishops who ousted Nicholas for doing that, they were told in the vision by the Blessed Mother that they were to restore Nicholas, that he was right. Not that God the Virgin Mary advocates violence, but he was right in his indignation about someone from the church, in this case, who was Arius, promoting a heresy, a wrong teaching of Jesus Christ. See, they really, really cared back then, and they wanted it to be really, really clear, So, Nicholas was the complete package, primarily very, very humble, charitable, sincere, but he stood up for the faith when the time was needed. But there's something else going on this week in both calendars of the Eastern and the Western churches, and that is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. In the East, we call this the Feast of the Conception of the Mother of God in the womb of Saint Anne. Of course, in the East, it's always longer, right? They can't just say two words like Immaculate Conception. They have to make this long sentence. (laughs) We always are a little more elaborate, a little more wordy in the Eastern churches. And the question is, is this the same feast? Why do we call it different things? The Eastern churches that are in union with Rome, in other words, Eastern Catholic churches such as my own, we do call this feast day. And again, it's December 8th. Originally in the East, December 9th. But on December 8th, The Eastern Catholic churches, those Eastern churches in union with Rome, do observe, along with the Latin Rite Church, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And we call it that as well. We also call it, as I mentioned, the conception of the Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne. So in other words, you see what's interesting here. In the Eastern Catholic churches, what we do is we retain our Eastern theology, our Eastern spirituality. Because remember, the Eastern Catholic churches were those parts, parts, of the Orthodox churches that reunited with Rome and Rome with them, starting in the 15th, 16th centuries. Remember, there was a great split, a great schism in 1054 AD between East and West. The East called themselves the Orthodox churches, the West called themselves the Roman Catholic Church. But fast forward 500 years— some parts of the Orthodox churches reunited with Rome, and that's what my church is. This is what we call the Eastern Catholic churches. So we accept what the Latin Rite Church, the Church of Rome, believes and professes. We have to because we're a Catholic, we're part of them. But we experience it and retain our own tradition, our own expression about those teachings. And the Immaculate Conception is one of those examples and in fact, in the Western Church, when the Pope, Pope Pius IX, in 1854 declared this infallible dogma, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that was 100 years before I was born, 1854 was the year that this was proclaimed by the Pope. When he did that, the Roman Catholic Church, in order to make this proclamation, relied, as they often do, on the original texts and teachings of the Eastern Churches. It's a way of going back to the source, you know, to the womb, to where it all started. Let's face it: the church didn't start in Rome. It certainly spread there very quickly and came to prominence and is the center to this day. But it did not start there. It started, of course, in the Holy Lands, in the Middle East, in the East. And so, those were the earliest teachings, the earliest practices, the earliest liturgy was in the East. So whenever the West wants to make a correct formulation, they have to go back to the origins, to the East. Now, there's a great controversy between the Eastern Orthodox churches and the Roman Catholic Church on this teaching. The Orthodox churches claim that they do not accept or believe in the quote-unquote Immaculate Conception. Well, I'm going to address this issue for the sake of always towards unity, which is what this program is committed to. Unity in the church, especially between the two lungs of the church, completely east and west. So I'm going to address this difference in why it's relevant to come to an answer.
0: I'm Father Thomas Leah on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com that's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card with your help we can keep light of the east's illumination bright Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Do you know what the Christmas Spirit is? Some say the Christmas Spirit is a feeling. A feeling of love, joy, and peace that comes this time each year. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad answer. It's just incomplete. The Christmas Spirit is the living presence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, actively animating and perfecting the lives of Christians. In fact, The love, joy, and peace that we associate with the Christmas spirit are what St. Paul calls the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Many wish the Christmas spirit could be with us all year round. Well, I've got news for you. It can. Why do you think I'm so jolly? So even long after the Christmas decorations are stored away, our hearts can be filled 365 days with the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaim to the shepherds. If we are open to the power of the Holy Spirit, the true Christmas spirit. For Christ is born, glorify Him. This is Bishop Christopher Coyne for OLPH Radio in Burlington, Vermont, and you're listening to Light of the East.
1: Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host, and again, wishing you a blessed feast of St. Nicholas and a blessed feast that is coming up, which we're talking about now, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. And I mentioned that there's a controversy between the Eastern Orthodox Churches and the Roman Catholic Church on this teaching of the Immaculate Conception. And the Orthodox, of course, get even more anxious about it whenever something is proclaimed to be like a dogma or infallible, because they tend to not always go that far in certain things. They leave certain things up to, well, a certain mystery, a certain tradition, but not necessarily defined that clearly on some things, not all things, but some things. And this is one of those. Now, the Orthodox believe that you can't say that Mary was born without original sin, that she was conceived without original sin. Basically, to present their position in in a very hopefully simple way, the Orthodox say that if the Virgin Mary was born or conceived without original sin, it kind of takes her then out of the human race, and therefore Christ's incarnation, in other words, his becoming fully human, could not have happened. But at the same time, though, as the Orthodox say that, we look at the text, the liturgical text. Now, the Orthodox churches and my church, the Eastern Catholic churches, we use the same identical prayer, the same identical liturgical text. We brought all that with us at the time of union. We did not have to disavow any of our spirituality, our prayer, our liturgical text, ancient liturgical text. So, we pray the exact same thing as the Orthodox church. Now, I'm going to cite some examples from the liturgical text because, you see, the way we pray is what we believe and that's the same with East and West. But in particular with East, because our prayer, our liturgical prayer, is made up in large part not only of the Psalms, the verses from the Scripture, but verses that were written later by saints over, over the centuries, and we call them dogmatic hymns. In other words, there are things that we sing, because we sing everything, we chant everything in our churches, but the words that we sing are basically dogmatic texts, It's like singing a song about what you believe. And that's what we go to. We're not going to sing that. We're not going to say that to God in the church, in a liturgical service. We're not going to stand there and lie to God or say something false. We're going to proclaim from our lips and with our voice, our whole being, what we believe. So we have to believe what we're saying. So here's one of the liturgical texts. Now, this one comes from a recent feast, a recent beautiful feast, the entrance of the mother of God into the temple, sometimes called in the West, the presentation of the mother of God in the temple. That's November 21st. And this text says this, "'Today let the heavens above greatly rejoice, and let the clouds pour down gladness at the mighty and marvelous acts of our God. For behold, the gate that looks towards the east,' born from a fruitless and barren womb, according to the promise, and consecrated to God in his dwelling, is now being brought into the temple as a spotless offering. Let David greatly rejoice and play in his harp, saying, Virgins shall be brought to the king after her. Her companions shall be brought into the ark of the Lord to be nourished with the life of the incorruptible one, who was begotten from eternity for the salvation of our souls. Now notice the references there. The reference comes from the prophet Ezekiel chapter 43 and 44, it's a vision of a temple in which part of the temple no one could enter except the high priest. Yet the Virgin Mary enters there. She also has a reference here. There's also a reference here to the Ark of the Covenant who no one could touch. Also, there's a reference here to her being a spotless offering. You see, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, other things in the scripture too, like the burning bush, these are references in which something remained pure, that no one could inhabit it or touch it or go there, which means it had to have been absolutely pure. So, these are prefigurements of the Virgin Mary, which are in the Old Testament, which means that it's saying that she had to be totally pure and untouched. And if that's the case, she had to have been conceived then without original sin. And of course, Being conceived without original sin was an intervention by God. See, we all have to be redeemed by Christ. And the Virgin Mary was redeemed in anticipation of becoming this living temple of God. So she was redeemed already in the womb, the moment of conception. The rest of us are redeemed by virtue of our baptism and living the life of Christ. But she already had that. She didn't have to be baptized. Now, there's another reference here. Again, this is still from the feast of the entrance of the mother God into the temple, November 21st. This is from the morning prayer service in the Byzantine church. You were consecrated to God, O pure virgin, even before your conception. Now, after your birth, you are offered as a gift to him in fulfillment of the promise of your parents. You are a divine temple and brought to the temple of God. As a young child, you have appeared in the temple accompanied by the brightly burning lamps. You have shown yourself to be the dwelling of the unapproachable divine light. Truly magnificent is your entrance, O only bride of God and ever virgin. You see, right there it says directly, you were consecrated to God, O pure virgin, even before your conception. Now, it sounds like the Immaculate Conception to me. All right, let's go to some verses now. That are still from this feast day, one more from this feast day, and it says this. And this is from, again, the Matins service for November 21st. Human nature inherited the misdeed from Eve of old. Now the Theotokos has flowered forth from Eve's stock. She is our restoration and incorruption. And today she is being brought into the temple of the Lord. Now, the Virgin Mary, as a reference to Eve, she becomes a new Eve, and that becomes very apparent at the foot of the cross, when Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, says to her, Woman, behold your son. The son referring to St. John, the evangelist. But woman, not mother. It's the same reference as the word and the name Eve. So the Virgin Mary is becoming the new Eve. Eve was also created and conceived spotless, without sin. Remember, there was no sin. Original sin did not come automatic with human beings. Original sin came into the picture after human beings who were totally innocent and pure, in other words, immaculately conceived, after they sinned. So if the first Eve was without sin, immaculately conceived, and the Virgin Mary becomes the new Eve, she too must be immaculately conceived. Okay, more liturgical text. Let's jump now to the feast itself, December 8th. As I mentioned, the Eastern churches, many Eastern churches, celebrated on December 9th, calling it the Conception of Mother God in the womb of St. Anne. Now, some theories on that is that the Eastern churches wanted to throw the exact nine-month pregnancy off by one day, so they made her conception on the 9th, because her birth is on September 8th. And therefore, it's exactly... Nine months from conception to birth plus one. So it throws it off just a little bit so it's not perfect. In other words, that only God could be perfect, only Christ could be perfect in his conception and birth. That is one theory I've heard. But the point is December 8th, macroconception Conception in the Eastern Catholic Churches and in the Latin Rite Church. Here is one of the texts from the Vesper service of December 8th. It is fitting that the Queen of Heaven and Earth who is more precious than the cherubim and incomparably more glorious than the seraphim, be conceived and remain immaculate as the angels. So they who are servants of the Lord can boast of their own queen, the mother of God. Glory and praise to the Lord who willed it so, the creator of all things. It is fitting that the unique and chosen woman to be conceived without sin and the power of Satan is now taken away, for the mother of God will never bow before him. Glory and praise to the Lord who willed it so, the creator of all things." So again, there's a very direct reference to Immaculate Conception, although it never says that word exactly, essentially says it in its other formulation. Now, again, we look at other references in the Old Testament to things that were pure and untouched. For example, we sing this in the matin service, We the faithful extol you, Mother of God, as the life-giving spring that does not dry up, the gilded candlestick of the light, the living temple of the Lord, and His immaculate tabernacle, which is more spacious than earth and heaven. Again, those are references to Old Testament imageries, which were miraculous, something untouched, something virginal, a spring that does not dry up, the gilded candlestick of the light of the living temple, The immaculate tabernacle which no one could enter or touch so again biblical prefigurements of this absolute purity of the virgin mary seen in these symbols such as the candlestick the spring the ark the temple and so on and as i mentioned before the burning bush so i believe that a meeting point should and can happen between the east and the west on this issue of the immaculate conception whether these words it as such exactly that way, as the West does, or they word it another way. I believe that we arrive at the same point, when you really get down to it and really examine the liturgical text. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of
0: the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab, and on iTunes. Catholic Radio gives us an opportunity to become part of a larger family. It can be so lonely when we are struggling in our faith or just try to live our faith on our own. The Catholic Radio connects us to that larger community of faith where we're able to get the support, the encouragement, and the grace that we need to not just struggle on, but to really celebrate all the blessings that God brings into our life through our Catholic faith. Dr. Greg Popchak thinks Catholic Radio is important.
1: So should you. Thank you for listening.